if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to John 17. Uh, We come to our last study in this wonderful prayer. And because it is the last study, I I would like to um, read all of it. I think we have time to do that. Let's uh, just read from John 17. We're looking at the last section, but if you move to the next slide there, Amos, uh, you have uh, an outline uh, of the prayer. Uh, Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 to 5 that the Father would glorify him, that he might glorify the Father. Then he prays for the disciples, and his prayers for the disciples is really twofold. He prays for their protection and for their perfection, that they would be sanctified. And then the last section, Jesus prays for all Christians, and that's the section that we're going to look at this morning. So uh, let's just um, read from John 17, uh, verse 1. John 17, uh, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. Notice how he addresses God, Father, not God. I think there's a a little sort of tendency creeping in, particularly among young people, to pray, God, I thank you. We're taught to pray, Father, I thank you. Just an important point. It's a New Testament perspective. It's an important perspective. Um, uh, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And and that's the example that Jesus sets. He addresses uh, the, the Father, not God, but the Father, I think that's important. Just read Paul's prayers in the epistles, and it's Father, 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 not God, God, God. It's important. And Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's the first section. Jesus is praying for his own glory uh, to be reinstated. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and uh, they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, uh, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, world, but they are in the world, uh, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name for protection, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am 
not uh, of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The burden of his prayer there is protection. He's praying for the protection of his disciples. Verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Perfection. Sanctify makes to, means to make holy. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And then from verse 20 to the end is the section that we're looking uh, at this morning. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. And we know uh, God will always bless the reading of his word. This is uh, the high priestly prayer. It was first called that by Cheryl of Alexander in the 5th century. The high priest, remember, uh, entered the Holy of Holies and made intercession for the people of God. And here the Lord Jesus makes intercession for his people, for the disciples, and then uh, for all Christians of succeeding generations. Um, it, uh, it, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this is, is holy ground, the most sacred portion of, in all of scriptural revelation, and although the whole palace of scriptural revelation is open to us, it's here that we enter the Holy of Holies, because here we're um, allowed, as it were, to eavesdrop on the prayer of the Lord Jesus uh, and the fellowship that he enjoyed with his Father. So after praying for the disciples, then he prays for uh, for us, for all succeeding generations of Christians. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, that's the disciples whom he has just prayed for, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And as you look at that last section, the great burden in the heart of the Lord Jesus as he intercedes for succeeding generations of Christians is uh, that they might be one. He prays for their unity. Now, we did look at this passage when we considered the subject of the church and the unity of the church, but uh, I think it's appropriate uh, to revisit it again this morning. And I want you to notice seven things. Don't worry, we'll rattle through them very quickly, but seven things this morning. 
First of all, the desire for Christian unity. Our Lord prays that we may be one. Verse 21, they all may be one. So the great burden of our Lord when he, uh, from the end of his earthly life, looks down in omniscience through all of history to the present day and beyond to the second coming, to his second coming, he prays that his church, which he purchased with his own blood, may be one. And if that was his prayer to his father, it was obviously his desire for the church, that they all may be one. And if our Lord desired it and prayed for it, how can we ignore it uh, or remain indifferent to it? If sin is that which runs contrary to the revealed will of God, and we know that it's in the very heart and mind of the Lord Jesus, the burden of his heart that his church may be one, then we sin if we ignore uh, what our Lord has said and fail to implement uh, what he has taught, that they all may be one. So that's the first thing, the desire for Christian unity. Secondly, notice the basis of Christian unity. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That the unity that Jesus desired is not an organized unity that embraces everyone and includes anything, but it is a, a gospel unity unity uh, based on those who had come to uh, 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 faith and believed in the apostolic word. Jesus is praying for an evangelical unity will, that will embrace only those who have believed, who have come to faith through the apostolic word. If you go back to verse 8, uh, uh, Jesus uh, says, uh, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So during his earthly ministry, Jesus taught his apostles the, the, the word of God, that which was given by the Father to the Son, that the apostles might be uh, instructed on the true uh, nature of the gospel. If you go back to chapter 16, just one page in your Bible, perhaps, uh, 16 and verse 12, Jesus speaking to the disciples says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So not only did Jesus teach the disciples the truth, but he promises when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will lead them into all truth. 
that he will take what had been given to him by the Father, he will give to the Spirit, and the apostles under God will be guided as far as Scripture is concerned as they lay the foundation for the church. And so what we have in the Bible is apostolic truth, apostolic, the apostolic gospel. And when Jesus prays for the unity of the church, he prays for those who had come to believe in the apostolic gospel, in the apostolic truth, what Jude calls the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Now that's important. Because the first mistake of the modern ecumenical movement is in a desire for unity, they minimize truth. They reduce truth to the lowest possible uh, common denominator to include everyone and exclude no one. So on the one hand, you have liberals who deny the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. They demythologize Scripture by removing from it all the miraculous and, uh, and, and have just a, a, a secular approach to the Bible as a man-made book. And on the other hand, you have traditionalists who have put layer upon layer of requirements upon the apostolic gospel, so neutralizing the apostolic gospel that the apostolic gospel no longer becomes clear. Now, that's not what Jesus is asking for, and that's not what Jesus is praying for. He's, he's praying for a unity that will be based upon apostolic truth for those who have come to faith in the truth that he has revealed. So when you find evangelicals embracing those who deny the historical gospel, that is not fulfilling what our Lord prays for here. He is asking for a, for a, for a, a unity that is based upon apostolic truth. So the desire for unity, the basis of unity, the extent, thirdly, uh, in unity. Look at what Jesus says there in verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now that's, that's a remarkable statement. He prays that the unity among evangelicals might reflect the unity of the persons in the Godhead. That we are Trinitarians. We believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, yet one God. But so intimate and so close are the persons of the Godhead is that, uh, uh, that there is interpenetration between them. That the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Three distinct persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but so close and intimate as the relationship between them is that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Spirit. That, of course, was the catastrophe of the cross. Because when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That uh, intimacy, that closeness, that fellowship, at that point for those three hours when darkness descended and the wrath of God fell, when he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that uh, 
uh, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That intimacy at that point was disrupted. Now, it's that fellowship between the Father and the Son that is so amazingly close that is the basis, the model, the pattern of the love that ought to be between two Christians or between all Christians. God is love. You see, in uh, Islam, they have a a single-person deity. Well, a single-person deity doesn't know what love is. Quote a familiar hymn. Not a familiar hymn, a familiar secular song. I want to know what love is. But a single-person deity doesn't know that. Because how can he know how to love? Because from all eternity, he's only had himself to love. But, but in a trinity, there is love between the persons of the Godhead that has existed from all uh, eternity. And so, God can be defined as love because there has always been someone else to love. And so the love that exists between the Trinity is the love that is to be manifested among Christians. This is the desire of the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, that they might be perfectly one. Verse 23, complete unity, says the NIV in verse 23, that the oneness of the Godhead might be the oneness of true believers. Now, if Jesus prayed for it and desired it, how can we dismiss it? It ought to be the object of every true Christian to promote the unity of the church. J.C. Ryle, first bishop of Liverpool, says, Let us bear much, concede much, and put up with much before we plunge into uh, secessions and separations. Churches can divide over the most trivial of issues. Let me give you some. I've been uh, 38 years in the ministry. Let me give you some of the um, things that have divided churches that I'm aware of from my experience. So there was a major church split and uh, a neighboring pastor was brought in to try and sort out uh, what had happened. And it was discovered that two deacons' wives were fighting over a tea towel after a church social. I heard of a, a Presbyterian church that was divided, separated, uh, over uh, whether or not to put flowers on the communion table when there wasn't communion being held. I heard of one of our churches where people were up in arms because, and it wasn't this church, because the pastor grew a beard during lockdown. <laughs> a deacon received an anonymous letter uh, about an elder. Do you know what I do with uh, anonymous letters? I file them under B for bin. I don't read that. If it, people don't have the courage to put their name to, uh, to a letter, I, I don't bother with that. I don't read that letter. But this church was divided over an anonymous letter. I heard of a church that uh, had a vote on whether the clock should be removed from the back wall because the pastor was preaching a bit long. Another church divided over whether uh, our our, uh, division resulted because the worship leader, and this is very relevant to us, was wearing shorts (laughs) while leading the worship. 
We shouldn't divide on that. Um, I heard of a very difficult members meeting because the accounts weren't reconciled. And they weren't reconciled by 50p. I heard a church dividing over the communion wine. Whether or not it should be Ribena, grape juice, or real wine. Two um, uh, uh, churches during lockdown reported divisions over the type of coffee that was being served. Now I can understand that because we have a staff team and their preferences on uh, the type of coffee. I'm a Nero's man. I like Nero's, but it's, it's just not quite hitting the mark for the younger folks on the team. Um, and a division because the pastor announced a potluck supper. There's no such thing as luck in the Bible. They wanted to call it pot blessing or pot providence supper. An argument over who had access to the photocopier. A lady left the church because at the coffee time she brought in a bottle of um, vanilla syrup to serve with the coffee and one of the older members thought it looked too much like a bottle of alcohol. Someone locked away the Hoover because it was only the uh, woman's group that was qualified to use the Hoover. You know, how, how ridiculous, how common, and how sad. Discord and division, separation and schism ought to be a great source of grief to the true child of God. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said, Discord and division become no Christian for wolves to worry lambs is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another, this is uh, unnatural and monstrous. We have got to understand that those who sow the seeds of division are not fulfilling the wishes and the desires of the Lord Jesus. Disunity is not just wrong, it's sin. And it is to go against Christ's desire for his church. The desire for Christian unity, the basis of Christian unity, the extent in Christian unity. Fourth thing I want you to notice is um, the nature of Christian unity. What is unity? Well, I think it's important that it's, to understand that it's not uniformity. Look again at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Now, that free is just as or even as, as the authorized version uh, has it, is equivalent to an equal sign in Greek. It means equal to, parallel with, commensurate with, that our love to one another should parallel the love uh, and the unity that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father. Now, the Father and the Son are one, one in essence, one in nature, one in purpose, but they are not the same. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. There are distinct persons, uh, distinct, <coughs> excuse me, distinct persons in the Godhead. You know the uh, great opening of John's Gospel, the prologue of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was God. He was God. Jesus was God. And the Word was with God. Literally, he stood face to face. He was God, but, but he was in fellowship with his Father as well, standing face to face with the Father. 
In redemption, they have different functions, the persons of the Godhead, and they take different roles. The son took the subordinate position, uh, taking the very nature of a servant and being uh, found in uh, a human appearance. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. As I said when we were reading the passage, that you need to hold the, the persons, the, the, the distinctions of the Godhead in your head when you pray. I have lost count over the years of the number of people who have thanked the Father for dying on the cross at the Lord's table. The Father didn't die on the cross. Who died on the cross? The Son. So in prayer, you're coming to the Father. That's why I think it's helpful actually to address the Father uh, in prayer as Jesus taught us and as Paul exampled for us, that we come to the Father through the Son in the energy of the Spirit. And we thank the Father for sending the Son and the Father for dying upon the cross. But the persons of the Godhead, you see, are distinct. They're not the same. The unity that Jesus is praying for is a, a unity that respects and tolerates differences. I'm a Baptist by conviction. I believe that the, the, the church order that we practice is the one that's revealed in the New Testament. If I believed in a, an outside body that had influence over this local church, I, I would be a Presbyterian. If I believed in infant baptism, I would be a Presbyterian, a Congregationalist, or an Anglican. If I believed that, that tongues and prophecies were for today, I would be a Pentecostal. I, I don't believe those things. That's why, that's why I'm a, a, a Baptist. I'm a Baptist by conviction. But that doesn't mean to say that I'm writing everybody off that, that hasn't the same convictions as me. They are the Lord's people, and I have, uh, I am one with them. And the basis of our unity is not baptism uh, or, or uh, gifts. The basis of, of our unity with other people of other traditions is the fact that they have come to faith and believed in Jesus, believed the apostolic gospel, the apostolic word. And that What's true of uh, interdenominational uh, works? People see denominations as a great travesty. I, I don't see it as a travesty. I see it, well, uh, the, 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 uh, the breadth and, and multicolored nature of God is reflected in the people that follow him. And far better that people remain true to their convictions, that sink their convictions and never speak about their convictions. But there is, a, there is a unity that transcends all of that. And the, the local church. We, we are a wide body of people. There are a range of views even with, within this church. And to use Brian Edwards' uh, illustration, we need to differentiate between essential truth, important truth, secondary truth, and phantom truth. So, essential truths are things that you need to believe to be a true Christian. You need to believe in the Trinity. 
You need to believe in the virgin birth. You need to believe in the inspiration of Scripture. You need to believe in justification by faith. That's, that's crucial to being a Christian. That's essential truth. And then there's important truth. Truth that uh, is important to us. Church order, baptism, separation of church and state, election, predestination. Those are important things. We don't gloss over those things. Those are important things. And then there's what we would call secondary truth. Things that the Bible um, teaches, but we mustn't live, uh, uh, exalt to extraordinary importance and make them a test of fellowship, like the head covering. Now, whatever your view on the head covering is, the Bible teaches something about it. Well, we have to be persuaded in our own mind. We have to allow liberty for people who come to different convictions uh, uh, about it than us. It's not that we don't have a position uh, on it. Or you, every Christian should have a position on it because the Bible teaches on it, but, but it's, it's, not, it's not critically important, nor is it a test of fellowship. And then lastly, Brian Edwards says, we have phantom truth, things that we have raised to uh, um, tests of fellowship. Like, like dress, like the frequency of the Lord's Supper, all, all of those things. Those, those are, are things that, that spring from traditions and aren't necessarily revealed uh, in the Bible. So what I'm saying is that there is diversity. That unity uh, is, uh, allows us to be to be different. So the desire for Christian unity, the basis of Christian unity, the extent of Christian unity, the nature of Christian unity, the reason for Christian unity. Look at verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look at verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. There are people, you see, who come to this passage and say Jesus uh, is, is praying for unity, but it's a spiritual unity that Jesus has in mind. We don't have to make an effort to, to be one, to be united. And it's true that we are one with every true Christian. We're part of the universal church of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is asking for a visible expression of that unity. Otherwise, how can the world see and appreciate the unity that we have? So you could take two cats, you could tie their tails together, you could throw them over a washing line, and they would be united, but they wouldn't be united, certainly in a way that you could see. The unity of believers is, a, is an important expression of, of God's love to us because his love has been shed abroad in our hearts and that love then enables us to, to love other believers in a visible way. George Newton, one of the early Puritans in 1662, said, How much our blessed Savior and his gospel suffer by the hot contentions of those who call themselves saints. So, so when, when a, a church, a local church, is disunited, 
how that undermines the gospel, how that uh, uh, affects the effectiveness of the gospel in the world. I knew a church in, in Swansea in Wales, and they had a major division in the 80s, and then they, they uh, got a new pastor, and the, the two congregations then came together as one, and they had a, a service of reconciliation, and there was a lady who left that church and uh, uh, over the division. She wasn't a Christian, and uh, she met a church member, and she said, um, oh, I heard the good news. I heard the good news. And she came back to church the next week, and she really did hear the good news, and she was converted. You see, nothing, and the devil knows this, nothing undermines the witness of a church more than rancor, discord, and division. The devil knows that. And even, I think, if Jesus is praying that the world might know that we're one, even across denominations, there ought to be some visible expressions of unity at times that people can see us working together and pulling together and because sh- we share the same gospel. Although we have differences, we share the same gospel. I remember traveling to a conference in, in England and instead of uh, um, hiring a car at the airport, we decided to get a taxi and we divided it between the four of us. And there was, there was a Baptist, there was a Presbyterian, there was a Congregationalist and an Anglican. It sounds a bit like a rabbi, a priest and a minister going into a pub. Um, and uh, this, this taxi driver asked us then, you know, uh, we said we're going to a Christian minister's conference. And he said, oh, what church do you belong to? And we said, oh, we're different churches. He says, but you're, you're together in, in one taxi. And for the next hour, we were to, able to explain to that taxi driver what actually we had in common. And we had the, the gospel itself in uh, common. I think there has to be some kind of visible visible expression of that unity so that the world knows that we are His. The desire for Christian unity, the basis of Christian unity, the extent of Christian unity, the nature of Christian unity, the reason for Christian uh, unity, the key to Christian unity. Jesus has made it clear that this unity that He desires is a, a spiritual thing rather than a mechanical thing. In other words, it's not something that can be manufactured or imposed It's something that must spring from the heart. And he says the key to promoting this spiritual unity is a a knowledge of God. Look at verse 26. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you see that? that? That Jesus is praying that they might uh, increase in their knowledge of God. I have made known to them your name. Name, remember, isn't just a means of identification. It is a summary of the person's character, of who he is. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. In other words, we, we grow, as we grow in our knowledge of God, our love deepens for one another. So that's, 
the, the, the great mistake of the ecumenical movement. They say, no, let's, let's minimize doctrine. Let's throw any doctrine out that's, uh, that's controversial, that prevents uh, unity, and let's reduce it to a, 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 the lowest possible common denominator. And, and, and Jesus says, no, maximize truth. You match, as you grow in your knowledge of truth, this unity comes. So if you're having trouble loving and caring and, and being tolerant and uh, generous to another person, could it be that your knowledge of God is deficient? That your understanding of the gospel is deficient? That your understanding of the truth is deficient? Because as we grow in our knowledge of Him, so that love within us grows because God is love, and that love then grows within us, and we increasingly are enabled to love the unlovely. So if you have trouble loving um, another Christian, another member, say, of this church, if you have trouble loving another member, there's, there's one of two possibilities. Either you're not converted and you don't know the truth. Well, John says that. Whoever does not love does not know God. That's stark, isn't it? That's bald. That's direct. You don't love. You don't know God. Or else, and this is perhaps the reason, you don't know God enough. Because as you grow in your knowledge of God, your love, because God is love, increases and you're enabled to love one another. So the desire for Christian unity, the basis of Christian unity, the extent uh, in Christian unity, the nature of Christian unity, the reason for Christian unity, the key to Christian unity, and then the perfection of Christian uh, unity. Just notice verse 24 Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Now, some commentators are a bit shocked that, that Jesus would throw in a, a verse about his second coming, that the the disciples would be where he is in the middle of this section where he's praying about love. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. Just go back to verse 4 uh, of the, the prayer. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. You see what's, what's happening here? That, that Jesus is leaving, that he's, he's returning to the Father, and he's going to be uh, glorified with the glory that he had before the world uh, began. And he now prays then in verse 24 that the disciples would be with him, that they would behold that glory. I, I think that's wonderful. It's It's as we behold his glory, as we see his glory, as we witness his glory, what theologians call coram deo, as we behold the face of God, as we see the face of God, all distinctions and separations 
uh, fall into insignificance, and then in heaven there is one church perfectly united, glorifying the Savior together. Wesley's great hymn, Love Like Death Has All Destroyed, Rendered All Distinctions Void, Names and Sex and Parties Fall, Thou, O Christ, art all in all. And one thing's for sure, when we arrive in heaven uh, and we behold the face of God, we'll not be asking who was Baptist. We'll not be asking who was a Presbyterian. We'll not be asking who was an Anglican because we'll be caught up with the glory of God. Uh, a few years, and, well, a number of years ago, I was a member of the BEC Council and they were organizing meetings uh, for, for Ireland here. And, and a couple of the Presbyterian men uh, um, came up with the title to generate interest and I was very unhappy and felt a bit uncomfortable as a Baptist with this. It was a quote from George Whitfield where he said, there'll be no Presbyterians in heaven. <laughs> and that was the title of the meeting. There was actually a meeting in Ballymena entitled, No Presbyterians in Heaven. But Whitfield's point was, there'll be no Baptists in heaven. There'll be no Methodists in heaven. There'll be no brethren in heaven. There'll be no free Presbyterians in heaven. All those, all those distinctions will fall as we behold the glory of God. You know, people, people sometimes, you hear people say, you know, you've got to get on with your fellow brothers and sisters because you've got to get on with them in heaven. No, no, no. We'll not have to get on with them in heaven. We'll be so consumed with the glory of God and the manifestation of the glory of the Lamb and throwing our crowns before Him, all those distinctions will pale into utter insignificance uh, in the light of what will be revealed. And that's what makes that, that verse, I think, uh, very significant. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, um, I, I know, Father, that this is a, a tall order, that it's a, a big ask, but I, I do pray that you would bring them safely to heaven where one day, one day, they will be perfectly at one. Amen.